Hi, and welcome to the History of Rosie Roaring Twenties podcast. Uh, today, I am joined by Daisy, aka Disability History Snapshots on Instagram. Hi, Daisy. Hiya. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your account or like your work? Yeah, sure. So I focus on uh, disability history very specifically. It's a uh, history that's not been particularly well studied and it's so relevant for you know all of us who are disabled to recognize you know where we came from and you know what's happened with our community beforehand there are some brilliant um academics who are working on disability history but you know it is very heavy academic language and not necessarily something that um you know a lot of other people who are kind of interested in history but didn't you know study um can understand so i try and make it a bit more accessible to the mainstream. It's one of those uh, hilariously ironic things that even our own history is inaccessible. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's great that you're shining a light on disability history, because I do think it is something that we practically never learn about. Um, and today we're going to be talking about disability in the 1920s, so obviously you're perfect for that topic. So I thought we'd start with like kind of like an overview of like disability. So like, um, I mean, obviously, I don't know if the figures are even out there, but, you know, what percentage of the population was um, disabled and like, was it more or less common? Because I know like certain illnesses, like say epilepsy was considered much more of a severe like disablement rather than what it is today. So I thought like maybe it was quite different being disabled back then yeah so I, I, I did some real hard digging for you to try and find <laughs> some numbers so you know obviously it's impossible to know for sure so there was there's never really been any way of measuring um this sort of thing you know even sort of much later on in kind of like you know the 70s and 80s people would talk about you know being registered disabled but that wasn't still wasn't a you know reliable source so you know a lot of things now that we would you know that we do consider disabilities that weren't necessarily included then as well as a lot of things that we now don't consider disabilities but were considered disabilities at the time like frequent drunkenness (laughs) but um what we do know is that after the first world war there were an extra 1.5 million people who had either lost limbs they were blind or deaf or have brain damage or severe mental trauma as a result of the war so that's just the additional disabled people which come out of the first world war and only with those specific things i have been known to refer to war as disabled person creation programs uh uh, join our club (laughs) yeah i mean that's a lot of people yeah so not long after that so i think it was well, probably about the beginning of the 20s, we have figures that show that half a million children had um, physical or sensory disabilities, so that would be, you know, um, being blind or deaf, um, due to poverty, a lack of immunisations and poor medical care. So those sorts of things that you would anticipate, you know, being of the, of the past. And many of those are things like, um, you know, epilepsy and diabetes and things that, you know, are still sort of, serious you know chronic illnesses that 
can have some, you know, very unpleasant effects, but are much more treatable now and wouldn't necessarily be called, you know, disabilities in the same way. Yeah, I guess our perception of disabilities is kind of someone without a leg or like, you know, um, physical disability. Um, Whereas I guess even now that's not really the case. And I think that wouldn't have been the case back then either. Well, yeah. So obviously, you know, these, you know, minor numbers that I've managed to, you know, pull out with some (laughs) from all over the place. So, you know, massive underestimation as well as, you know, not being inclusive of all of the types of disability and chronic illness and those sorts of things. But for context to uh, compare it today in the UK, there's thought to be about just over 14 million disabled people. So that's uh, 8% of all children are considered to have a disability or chronic illness of that kind, and 19% of working age adults are disabled. So, to, you know, as you can imagine, to if you had, you know, I suppose broadly comparable numbers to suddenly add an extra 1.5 million people on top, that is quite a lot and something that uh, the government suddenly has to deal with. Yeah, and I guess, like, at some point they probably had some sort of liability towards actually caring for the people from the war as well, because they're the ones that sent them to war. So I think that would have been, like, a huge, like, you know, shock to the system. Um, But did it help in any way with, like, helping kind of reduce some of the stigma of disability? Because if people were coming back from war and maybe they had, like, mental trauma or they had like missing limbs was that then considered more normal to be disabled because a family member could be returning from war disabled it's around certain disabilities you know definitely you know things like amputations and missing limbs being a good example um but even before the war there wasn't as much stigma around those sorts of things because it wasn't uncommon to you know, lose a leg due to a illness or an accident or, you know, workplace-related industries when they didn't have all of that, you know, health and safety that we've come to know and love. I mean, there was still that view that disabled people couldn't really do certain things. They wouldn't be able to work. They wouldn't be able to do all of this. And, you know, a lot of these... A lot of the, the solutions that... Um, the government and you know various healthcare providers uh, came up with were, I mean, questionable to say the least. So they would they had um, sheltered employment workshops and, and things like that that were that were just you know the disabled people who were being employed there. So like the um, Royal British Legion, uh, the poppy making factory that was one of these sheltered employment places where essentially the war veterans um, made the poppies to remember you know themselves and their friends it was kind of you know it tended to be very sort of boring repetitive and badly paid work they didn't really get much of a choice then in terms of like you know oh you could go work in a shop oh no like we're not gonna let you do that and I guess that would have been really frustrating at the time because you just want that choice of 
you know being free to choose what you want to do yeah absolutely even you know even um the people who were disabled before the war you know when everybody went off to fight disabled people were taking over some of those jobs that had been left behind and you know when the men returned rather than being you know quote unquote rewarded um you know with better access to you know employment to education or you know an improved social standing or even you know much appreciation they were just kind of made unemployed all over again yeah and i guess we kind of know about women helping out in the war effort um even though like they did lose their jobs after the war it's all very much like oh women were such a help but i've never heard anyone go oh do you know like disabled people played a big role um working at home during the war so it's obviously something that's just kind of been like you know taken out of everyone's memories because it's not seen as important yeah yeah that's that's one of the things that's really kind of um important i think is this idea you know it wasn't necessarily you know outward disdain for disabled people it just wasn't considered an important thing to mention yeah and i guess well i guess it's similar now like it's you know people don't necessarily like go and attack a disabled person but you know the underlying like stigmas and like um like discrimination towards disabled people is what the problem is so I imagine in the 20s that is the same issue that's being faced today because not much has probably changed apart from potential you know medication and stuff like that yeah I mean you know obviously that um you know physical and emotional outward abuse you know did very much happen and it it does now but you know the the systematic barriers are i was gonna say more important that's not that's not accurate (laughs) but you know they're they're the the primary focus i suppose for um you know for ongoing you know disability activism and things like that so obviously we kind of mentioned like you know, missing limbs and stuff like that. But in terms of, like, other, um, like, disabled things, like, say, like, Down syndrome and stuff, was that, like, a real, like, barrier, like, a real barrier to kind of life? Like, I know, like, a lot of epileptics got put in, like, kind of almost, like, mental asylums. Was that, like, similar with, like, stuff like Down syndrome and more, like, I guess, less physical, like more I don't know how to describe it but you you know what I mean like in terms of like conditions and stuff yeah cognitive impairments and things like that so yeah so this um institutionalization uh was a particularly big thing during um during this time period during the 20s and also the idea of eugenics was um quite popular at this time so, in particular, this idea that um, disabilities like that were genetic, and these were people who were treated particularly, you know, badly. They thought that you know, mental illness and learning disabilities and neurological illnesses and sensory impairments and low IQ would be passed down the family tree, and so the you know, court orders to sterilize these people are really not uncommon at all you can sort of find them all the way through the records and unfortunately that is something that we still have evidence of happening today 
Yeah, I was going to say, like, in terms of today, like, maybe back then sterilising someone was the easiest way to stop them, but now it's, like, genetic testing, which would then eliminate the um, that person being born, um, which, like, is the same level of sterilising someone. It's just as bad, like, it just shouldn't be done, but I guess, like, you know, the stigma of having, a, like, cognitive or like neurological condition is has always been on that level yeah and unfortunately you know there are disabled people who are still being sterilized today you know against their wills because of their impairment so mad that it's still happening a hundred years later like society should have moved on a fair bit since then well, yeah and you know even these even the people who were kind of, you know, treated sort of, I guess as you would call it, comparatively well. So, you know, they they built like um, sort of villages, you know, out in the countryside. It was entire villages that were just be, you know, disabled people and they would be able to, you know, go out on the farms and garden and, you know, have any care they needed or all of that. It's, they were often called colonies. And it was just kind of, you know, another way just kind of shoving all the disabled people out of the way so you didn't have to deal with them anymore yeah i mean calling something a colony is never good <laughs> no, it's never a good kind of anything becomes associated with that word you go mm, i don't think that's going to be very nice no definitely not um yeah like i guess like they thought they were doing the right thing but obviously like today that would just be extremely frowned upon to start something like that <laughs> yeah so it kind of very much comes down to this whole sort of um you know as as we would call it now the, the medical model which is this sort of thing that you know disability is something to be cured or treated you know rather than just kind of like a relatively normal state of being you know our barriers are with society and not with you know whatever's happening with our you know limbs or brains or whatever maybe this also stems out of the fact you know a lot of diseases like say polio and like other like pretty hor horrific diseases were still um well there wasn't a vaccine for most of them and they were pretty much practically untreatable so i guess maybe like some of it has come from like you know their shame of like oh we haven't got a vaccine for polio and now you know 10 million children can't use their legs what have we done we need to cure this I think like that's also a big thing in the 20s because they're trying to like advance themselves mega medically but they don't really understand what they're trying to do I mean yeah there is a big element of that so a lot of um, children who ended up living in these sort of you know I guess they, they call them homes but they're kind of you know like hospital homes I guess, sort of, you know, care facilities would be regularly taken for, you know, surgeries that they weren't told about and they didn't understand and they didn't want with the, you know, guise of trying to make them, you know, quote-unquote normal. But all it, you know, ended up doing was causing them a lot of pain and a lot of problems and making it more difficult for them. Because, you know, rather than letting people sort of, you know, do the things that they needed to do in a different way, as they were, 
I wanted to try and make them, you know, mimic non-disabled people. Yeah, and I guess that would have been well, considering how much medicine has advanced in the past in the hundred years since the twenties, I imagine having an operation back then would have been horrific. Like, just not what you would have wanted. Like, whereas now there's a certain, you know, if you have an operation now, it's still bad, but you know, you get through it. Whereas I think back then it just would have been awful. Yeah, there was there was certainly uh, additional risk factors. Um, but also a relatively cavalier approach to these sorts of surgeries. So, yeah. Oh, what, what do you mean it's not necessarily medically vital? Ah, well, we'll do it anyway. Yeah, it's like they were practising. <laughs> yes, yes. And also that they would kind of, you know, go to any extent to, you know, have a chance of, you know, making a kid seem not disabled. Yeah, and I'm assuming, like, you know, if they had... You know, I, I guess if they'd become paralysed from the waist down from polio, there's not actually anything that could be done anyway. Like that's, you know, that's happened. They need to learn to how to help them get on with their lives. So I'm guessing none of these operations actually were a success. <laughs> I mean, you know, I guess it it depends how you define a success. You know, things they did for you know, taking polio as an example, things like, you know, um, like bracing and splints and supports so that these people would be able to, um, you know, support weight and sort of, you know, seem like they were standing up. Yeah, I think I've seen, like, pictures of people in there, like, in the splints and it, they just, it just doesn't look like it would work. <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't particularly, you know, they can do quite well at standing up for a photo and, you know, putting it in a medical journal. Going, ooh, look at me, well done, good job. But very, very little else, really. Yeah, and in terms of, like, so, um, in terms of, like, wheelchairs and, like, I don't know, like, crutches and, like, stuff to help disabled people, was this, like, um, advanced at this time or was this, like, really basic and, like, actually... You know, now wheelchairs and crutches and stuff have a certain amount of comfort and like user friendliness added in. Whereas well, back then, was it just not ideal to be in a wheelchair? Yeah, well, I mean, the first lightweight wheelchair wasn't invented until, you know, halfway through the 30s. So at this point, we're still at sort of um, deck chair on wheels. <laughs> Um, which, as you can imagine, is not all that helpful, particularly if you're, you know, trying to get back into the workplace. It's kind of, you know, a lot of the advances that you did get um, during this period were were medical, you know, as you would anticipate a world that is so focused on the medical side of things. But, you know, that this is, this is, you know, vital. Yeah, so, like, plastic surgery was improving like nearly every minute it seems and um prosthetic limbs also advanced really quickly as you would imagine from all of the new amputees as a result of the war so at Roehampton um was the hospital in Roehampton was a center of sort of prosthetic advancement and so if you go on the um 
website of the collection of uh, the Welcome Collection or the Science Museum. Um, and as I do sometimes when I'm looking for pictures from my Instagram, just type in leg. Uh, <laughs> I promise I do other research as well. That's just <laughs> one of those things that can lead you there. Then a, a lot of these prosthetic legs that you'll find from the sort of 20th century have come from um, Roehampton. Um, I mean, the hospital had about six different names during that time, but they all the same, the same place. And so a lot of people will have also seen um, pictures of those sort of facial prosthetics. So the ones that um, look like half masks. Kind of like Phantom of the Opera style. Yeah, yeah. So I think every now and then there comes like a news story where people rediscover these photos again and they see them. So some some people listening may have seen those to cover, you know, like vast facial injuries as a result of, you know, kind of trauma from the war that prior to the First World War, when there was a lot of other medical advances, they just wouldn't have survived. And so, you know, there was no real need to, you know, have a prosthetic sort of a prosthetic that kind of covered from you know your cheekbone right across to your chin because previously you wouldn't have survived that and, and like those are things like you know skin saving surgeries do you know like reconstructing noses and ears and covering large areas of wounds you know these types of surgeries that made that sort of much easier than what they were doing before which is you know sorry for anyone who's a bit squeamish essentially you know digging out a chunk of skin and then pasting it on top of the gap you know these these things started to you know improve really quickly which you know made healing of those injuries better and the aesthetics and there was less scarring and less pain and you know less of a ongoing you know, disablement as a result of those injuries. In terms of, you know, um, mobility aids or equipment or things like that, it's still quite slow. You're still on those, um, you know, those under underarm crutches that are just going to ruin your armpits. Yeah, I can imagine, like, that would have been uncomfortable. And I guess because they were making the advancements in prosthetics and stuff like that, they probably thought oh, we don't need to bother with the other stuff. Like, they'll have a leg now. They can walk. Like, I guess that's where it's come from on that. Um... Well, yeah, and I've, I have heard some people report that apparently when you're getting used to a prosthetic leg, those types of underarm crutches are a bit easier. Because I don't know why, I guess they automatically um, reach you up to your full height. But this is um, uh, coming from Americans, because that is those are the primary type of crutches that they do often use in America so they still they still have experience of this whereas um, here in the UK it's all the uh, forearm crutches yeah um, it's very interesting like how it's like how that could have actually been helpful but we just kind of I don't know they just seem very old-fashioned they're like kind of underarm crutches you never see anyone walking around on them <laughs> yeah they're, they're, they're really not ideal for long-term use no um, in terms of the prosthetics, what were they made out of then? Um, was it like plastic or was it kind of like quite chunky, heavy material? Well, yeah, so this is kind of when you start moving on from, you know, like leather and steel and iron and things like that onto um, 
not just uh, plastics, but sort of plastic blends. Um, well, really, the idea with the prosthetics was to try and, you know, get it so that someone needed as few prosthetics as possible throughout their life. And so they were really working on trying to make them strong uh, so that people could, you know, carry on and use them for the years and years. Whereas, you know, now we're aiming more for the uh, comfort and so, you know, oh, if we have to replace them in a couple of years, well, you know, as you would imagine, you know, you have to replace shoes, so why wouldn't you have to replace your leg? Yeah, and I guess they didn't think about stuff like, say it was like an 18-year-old and then they grew a little bit and then having to replace with the growth because, you know, children now, if, you have, if you're missing a limb, will just have a prosthetic that kind of grows with you. So I think maybe that would have also not been a consideration. Well, yeah, and so, it, you know, here in the UK, the NHS wasn't, you know, set up yet. And so um, the funding for these things, you know, it wasn't, as easy as you know, I say easy with a pause because you know I remember going to the orthotics departments in the NHS and you know it's not necessarily easy but it's much easier than it used to be when you would have to you know apply for funding and get it made and all of that with you know about 16 separate um, you know people and places and forms involved. Yeah so was getting funding if if you didn't get it, would you then have to pay for it yourself? Or was there, you know, you were likely to get the funding if you were disabled? So it's hard to tell because we don't have an awful lot of records about this sort of thing. Um, the uh, railway um, archives based in uh, Portsmouth University managed to find um, records of where the uh, railway companies um, paid out for prosthetics but that tended to be for people who were uh, injured on the job working in the railway sector and that covers an awful long period of time it's I think this type of funding came from a variety of sources and it's so difficult to tell yeah do you nobody wrote any of it down yeah, and I know, like, literally, you just want to be, like, go back in time and, like, shake them, like, please record this, please. Um, did, so would have, would the army or, like, um, the British Legion, would they have contributed to any funding of, like, prosthetics and stuff? Because obviously, you know, being in the war is a reason why lots of people were disabled. Yeah, so they would, they would have done with most of it but you know some people would have it purchased by you know charities or you know grants things like that we know, we know much more about the uh um advancements in the prosthetic technology than we do about how people actually got them yeah prioritize the information they wrote down yeah definitely i feel like when they were making the prosthetics they were really proud of themselves and then everything else just went out the window yeah yeah but i'm I imagine there, there are people um, much better than me who specifically research this period in disability who would know much better than me. But I'm very much an all-rounder in terms of disability history. Yeah, I guess well, Yeah, I guess if you spent like a long time studying the period, you might know more. But then also you really don't know what records would be available. Um, like, it's just hard to tell. Like, I think we've 
stuff like disability it's just very hit and miss isn't it like there could be nothing or there could be loads yeah yeah they, they, they have a habit of hiding it in sort of everywhere else because you know, disability history is still kind of uh, a area of history that is growing and so you know you tend to find it scattered around in medical history and military history and social history you know all over the place you, sort of up to you to have to go through and try and find it yeah i imagine like that is pretty difficult um and yeah it's just not helpful how things <laughs> used to be run um uh to help us kind of get a really good idea of what a disabled person's life might have been like back then because like without the nhs i do imagine it was a struggle yeah yeah for sure i think we forget how important the nhs is because we well you know we've obviously grown up with the nhs being there and now to think about it not being there is like just a bit crazy yeah yeah it's, it's barely something you can comprehend yeah especially considering like how many like I think there would have been more problems to deal with medically back then than there would have been now. So it's like, how did they even survive? Yes, I mean, you know, right at the beginning, the NHS also dealt with, you know, a lot of um, you know public health issues, which, you know, now were much more of a central government thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, obviously, we've kind of touched on, like, uh, the prosthetics um, and how the wheelchairs were just not fit for use um, in terms of like um, any kind of famous disabled people or like famous stories about disabled people was this was there anything like that in the 20s to like you know kind of highlight disability is a good thing I guess oh absolutely this is the this is the problem with this particular period of history. Everything I say makes it sound very down. And, um, no, I mean, probably the most famous of all of the disabled people is uh, Frida Kahlo. Frida Kahlo was very active during this period, called, you know, one of the most significant artists of the 20th century. She had polio as a child, um, left her with one leg shorter than the other but um she started painting in the mid 20s after she became more disabled from a bus crash wow i didn't even know she was disabled i feel like i know very little about her yeah she's one of these people that exists sort of in the peripheries of your mind all of the time you know you see so much about her i think they call it freedomania you know we've seen her portrait and you know cushions with her face on and not necessarily known all too much about her but um she is definitely someone who has been um i was going to say seized upon but that sounds quite violent uh <laughs> seized upon by by disabled people as a, you know kind of an icon it's, you know that that bus crash was quite um this is also a little bit gruesome. Yeah, so during that bus crash, she was impaled by a handrail through her pelvis, her uterus, and broke her spine. 
I've put in my notes. She had long-lasting pain and problems after that accident, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> if she didn't, I'd be worried. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so, you know, around that time that she'd started painting, you know, the really popular um, art where she lived was those sort of bright political murals, you know, around where she lived in Mexico. And, you know, she's said to have been partly inspired, particularly, you know, in the early days of her painting, by those types of murals that were around then. So it's, you know, I think really important to recognise, um, well, with all types of history, really, that, you know, it's not just, you know, the UK and the USA and Europe and, you know, a lot of these places had all different... Um, disability history is going on yeah and I imagine like somewhere like Mexico would have been kind of I guess less developed than say the US or the UK so it probably would have been even harder being disabled in Mexico because it was just not hadn't caught up with the other countries yet it's it's hard to know really because uh I don't speak Spanish <laughs> but there was you know a real um, sort of far left wing, you know, communist groups that she was involved with, and so while the, you know, outer landscape may have been more inaccessible, um, I do think that probably you know social attitudes were much better. Not necessarily across the whole country, because you know I do not know enough about Mexico in the 20s to you know make a comment on that but but within her you know group of people that she interacted with you know it was probably much more advanced in terms of you know attitudes and you know social barriers yeah which I guess helped her you know become a painter and like be kind of in the like be in the public eye whereas I guess if you were kind of surrounded by a group of people who were quite backwards in their opinions and put loads of barriers up to disabled people, then maybe she would never have broken through. Yeah, so, you know, there are a few reports for, you know, going over to America and the UK and Europe and all of that. And, I mean, she didn't speak particularly highly of any of those places, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone ever does. <laughs> That's what I've come to realise through doing this podcast is, you know, Britain and the USA and Europe are the bad guys. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's like, it's rubbish, I want to go back. <laughs> yeah. Um, so were there any other, like, famous disabled people? Maybe, like, I don't, I mean, I, I have no clue. I don't even know in terms of, like, you know, general population, famous people. So, um, but yeah, is there anyone else that's like iconic from this time? God, there are all sorts of people. I mean, you know, around this time, you've still got the popularity of, um, well, it's starting to wane a bit, but they're still quite popular, is um, freak shows. So, you know, circuses, sideshows, freak shows, whatever you would whatever you would call them. Which um obviously, you know plenty of people have, you know, many issues with the idea of, you know, 
freak shows being that you know people are often uh, were often exploited and you know taken from their families and you know paraded around uh, the countries against their will however it for some people it gave them the opportunity to take ownership of the fact that people were going to be staring at them for their entire lives showcase the talents that they had and you know make a decent amount of money out of it so it's a, you know a lot of the um you know sort of acts that were part of these traveling sideshows during the 20s went on to um feature in a film called freaks which was um made in the early 30s 1932 i think and that was sort of well aside from anything else one of very few films that exists where disabled people are played by disabled people but also you know this it was this um impression i guess of disabled people as their own community and of you know doing their own thing particularly at a time where you know this sort of time in you know disabled people in particular people with disfigurements were still being used in you know films and tv shows stereotypically as you know villains and terrifying scary people you know it's kind of around this time you're starting to really get the kind of i guess the sort of you know power of the people type thing and you know the sort of beginning of changing attitudes i guess but we weren't quite changing attitudes yet it was just sort of the uh <laughs> building the groundwork for people to disable people to start you know coming together yeah it's kind of like the greatest showman um <laughs> with they he had the kind of people that he kind of classed as freaks even though i think freak is very strong word now like I I don't think that as much as they're taking ownership of themselves and I like the idea the fact that they kind of made a community and you know they're really like embracing their well it's not a flaw like they're embracing who they are which is never a bad thing but I think the word freaks is probably they're using it against the people that used it against them but I think if it was to happen today and people, I think they'd, they'd think of a nicer name for themselves because I think that's just got such bad connotations now. Yeah, so there are people around who are um, who are reclaiming the term um, for themselves, uh, particularly in the disability arts um, community um, and the kind of, you know, activist circles and things like that, and, they, you know, reclaiming those terms for themselves a bit like um you know like cripple you know plenty of people are, are reclaiming that term as well yeah that's really interesting because you kind of think of all the bad things that that would have come with in the 20s and like it's actually quite a good thing i guess to claim it as your own but um I guess in the 20s when they claimed it as their own people then also used it against them too so it would have been the pre backwards kind of situation I guess yeah yeah so it's kind of you know freak shows is a very sort of um, generalised term because it, it would involve you know not 
just people who were disabled, but people who were, you know, just from other parts of the world. <laughs> just someone from, like, Spain, just speaking Spanish. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Essentially, you, would, you know, go to Thailand and then drag them over and say they were some kind of, um, you know, princess of somewhere or other. Or in some cases, actually, say they were, um, well, call them the missing link. It's a very unpleasant, racist sense of, you know, look at this person. They have darker skin. Yeah, that's that's just mad. And I guess, yeah, I guess like you're saying, it wouldn't have been all disabled people. But then I guess people like, you always see like pictures of really tall people or like really short people and like kind of stuff that people barely like bat an eyelid at now would have been seen as like a freak and like even stuff like I know in the greatest showman like the woman with the beard and stuff like that I guess like some of it would have been like not harmless making fun of because obviously it's not harmless but I guess some of it would have been quite normal things and then I guess other people who may be disfigured and stuff like that would have just been really horrible to make fun of them yes the only real thing I've heard about it is that it was seemed very much a story of um, the I was going to say the ringleaders that's not the word I'm looking for um, you know like you know, like P.T. Barnum and the people who were running and setting it up rather than you know, the actual people who were, you know, doing the work and doing the show. Yeah, like definitely. I, said, I haven't seen the film, so I shouldn't really comment. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I guess that's where people will kind of know the idea of the freak show from, because it's a most, like, recent example of that kind of thing being shown. But is that film that you mentioned earlier... Do you say it was called Freaks or Freak Show? Um, is that still available or at all? I think it is, but I'm not certain where. Um, it's. I think it's one of these that pops up um, every now and then on, you know, YouTube, and then lasts for about a week before it's taken down for copyright reasons. I yeah, think, I think it's one of those. Um, but yes, I've been um, meaning to find a copy for research purposes. Yeah. Because I'm uh, working on a project um, about uh, some of the disabled people who were acts in sideshows. And um, it's kind of, that film is kind of one of the, well, kind of the only. Um, sort of footage of you sort of a lot of these people so you know the the people who were in that film were sort of quite uh, famous acts and you know there isn't there's there's photos of a lot of them but not really you know any of that motion of um you know seeing them move around which is just sort of so cool when you're researching historical people I'm sure you know yeah the same thing yeah definitely and I guess you see more of their like 
character and personality as well. I know it, it's probably a silent film, is it? Or is it? Uh, no, it's not. So um, people may know of a reference from Freaks without knowing the film itself. So that, that sort of thing people do where they kind of have their cutlery in their hands and bang on the table and say, one of us, one of us. <laughs> That is from Freaks. Wow, that's, I mean, that's amazing because that's still like, people still do that, <laughs> surprisingly. Yeah, really. I, I think I said it earlier <laughs> on in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's really cool that it's from that. Um, yeah, like, I guess like it must, was it a popular film at the time then? It's hard to say. I think later on people found it kind of quite offensive during that sort of um, sort of sanitised period when you know there was a more of an attitude of oh no poor disabled people you can't say this you can't say that and that and a lot of it was you know so theoretically because like the idea is that the reason why it's taken down for copyright reasons isn't so much because of the copyright reasons because they you know leave up a lot of other things it's because they copyright holders think that it's bad for their reputation to have it there yeah i guess it's like kind of what we're going through now with films that were created in like the 30s 40s like say gone with the wind and like racial issues and then it basically becomes rather than kind of looking at it as like studying it from like a historic point of view and being like right this is the attitude like this is what's happening like yeah okay maybe in that in the film in the 30s like disabled people might have been portrayed different to how we would see disabled people today but it's more about learning from it rather than being like oh this is how we should think about disabled people and I think we like that's what we're going through with like racism whereas I think studying it is actually more interesting than you're not going to go out and adopt the attitude of, like, that's how you're going to treat people. Well, yeah, because there are so many examples during this period of, well, of this period as well, of, um, you know, the people in the disabled community, you know, banding together, taking charge and, you know, kind of trying to break away from, you know, expectations and assumptions, and that kind of leads up to the Second World War. You know, you've got, like, the what is considered the first um, disability rights march uh, in the UK it was in 1920. So that was the, the blind march. I mean, that sounds interesting. Um, were they all blind or was it like blind people and people that, you know, were in support of blind people? No, no, it was, it was all blind people and it was... Um, Specifically, all blind people, no guides, and um, the march also didn't include uh, veterans who had been blinded during the First World War, because they very specifically didn't want their demands to be met because of you know, pity or sympathy or any kind of um, you know, inspirational patriotism or anything. You know, they marched to London to 
meet the Prime Minister and demand better working conditions and legal protections for blind people. And and they succeeded. The Blind Blind Persons Act was, you know, passed later that year. I guess that's really brave of them to do it without guides and also like, you know, they knew that the veterans would have kind of skewed the the Im- image of the march because obviously I think probably after the war if you're a veteran it was like oh we must do whatever we can to help you because obviously it was the government's fault but it is brave that they marched to London without guides like that must have been like a kind of exciting but also terrifying experience for them because anything could go wrong well, it's kind of, you know they wanted to show that they were they were fine they were capable you know they were perfectly able to do this you know my my favorite part of that story is that uh, so they set off from three different places uh, and so the Newport delegation from Newport in Wales um, went up up through North Wales and went to meet and met up with the um, I believe it was the Sheffield branch in Manchester before coming back down to London. It's like, you, you were already closer in Newport. Yeah. Go straight from Newport. There, it's probably fine. Okay, like, literally, that would not have been a fun journey at all, like, going through North Wales up to... Oh, God, like, that is a long way. <laughs> yeah, so I, I posted about this um, on my uh, Instagram page a couple of weeks ago, and uh, someone from Newport commented on it going well what can I say we're always very extra <laughs> I mean it's true <laughs> I I just love that like I, I feel like it was kind of like oh well yeah well, yeah we'll be fine to meet you there that's fine <laughs> like just bad planning <laughs> yeah, it was just an accident they're like oh yeah that that's only like an hour detour that'll be fine <laughs> just went the wrong way decided to pretend that they meant to do it the whole time yeah, maybe that is the true reason, and we'll just yeah. never know. <laughs> we'll never know, apart from this wild speculation. Because <laughs> I guess, like, so I'm guessing some of them wouldn't have been fully blind. I'm guessing it would have been, like, a mix between, like, partially, like, sighted and blind, because, or someone would have had to plan the route for them or something, because I guess, like, you wouldn't be able to look at a map unless there was a Braille map, and I don't know if that would have existed then. Well, yeah, so um, the spectrum of blindness is, you know, very wide. You know, it's very few people, um, you know, have a blindness where it's just completely, you know, black, absolutely nothing. Um, the marks included, you know, blind people and partially sighted people and, you know, of all varieties of um, visual impairment. So, you know, there are all different types of blindness where say you lose vision in your central vision but you have peripheral vision other people with the other way around and you have sort of tunnel vision so you know they certainly weren't you know they weren't sort of left in a field blindfolded and you know told to find their way there they they had their ways of um navigating and they all had their canes well the not they didn't all have their canes the ones who had canes well um Although there weren't many guide dogs, obviously, as you can imagine, that's a very long way for a guide dog to walk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the poor dog. Yeah, you have to get them those little shoes. 
Yeah, bless them. Um, I kind of feel like this is where the expression "the blind leading the blind" should have come from. <laughs> like, yeah, just and it's, it's, and it's, we've just completely misunderstood the phrase. Yeah, <laughs> and it actually means fighting for your rights. Yeah, just fully the blind are leading the blind in this case. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like that, there were guide dogs as well because. Um, I guess I just assumed, like, people didn't realise that dogs would help blind people at this point. Oh, yeah, well, the um, sort of official, um, you know, guide dogs charity that kind of, um, you know, sort of like, like did the, does the official training and giving them out wasn't until a bit later. Um, and so, you know, debatably, you've got that whole sort of, you know, how much guide dogs are they? Are they doing all of the same things? Obviously, you know, I don't know that. But they certainly had dogs who'd been trained to do certain things, like, you know, keep them out of danger and navigate around things. And, you know, dogs have been used for that for well, centuries. I think there's some um, uh, sort of ancient Greek references to um, blind people using dogs to help them out day to day um, but obviously it's the past, they didn't write things down <laughs> you know we, do, we don't know exactly what tasks you know, they were able to do but they was, certainly were used as a kind of, you know, guiding method yeah, that's, I mean it's interesting like that dogs are so useful I always find it crazy that dogs are guide dogs because you just think of them as these cute like little animals to play with but actually they're really useful and I guess we've known that for a long time like we didn't start trying to make cats into like guide cats or anything like that <laughs> yeah they're very much when they want to animal yeah and I think we we've realized that during the I feel like that's why the Egyptians failed because they started worshipping cats and that's just never going to go well. Do you do you think they were trying to train assistance cats? I I reckon they must have been. <laughs> the part when they realized it wasn't going to happen. They're like trying to get the cat to bring in a drink or something and it's yeah. just it's just sat there like not responding. They're like oh, we've messed up. <laughs> yeah, cat find my keys. <laughs> Whereas the dogs, you know, once... Well, I suppose even without a bit of training, they probably would have been vaguely useful to a blind person in terms of, like, having something to kind of lead you and, like, be aware of the surroundings. Because I guess it would say if someone came up to the blind person and they didn't notice, maybe the dog would start barking and then that that's only, like, a basic level, but that's still really useful. Yeah, I mean... I feel like you know people with dogs can confirm that you know when you have a pet dog they like you and would rather you didn't die <laughs> yeah so perfect for blind people even back then when they wouldn't have been as amazingly trained as today's dogs because yes. i know like for the guide dogs today they have to go through like a year of training or something like they get trained from like the minute they they're, they're born <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah really um, laborious process, and so you know there are so many um, 
people on the waiting list for guide dogs who who could really really benefit from them but you know they need to meet such high standards that you know people are waiting for guide dogs for years yeah I think we just have this um opinion like I just always think like oh guide dogs must be so easy to get like there's so many of them about but actually that's not the case um but I guess because we see them around then we just have this impression like every blind person has a guide dog like that's what we think just like we think everyone who has a problem like if they have a missing leg or something that or if they're paralyzed or something that they're all in wheelchairs and they can't do anything like I think that's the impression that you get from history like it's just that's how it is but really we've we've you know we've discussed that is not the case yeah yeah and it's also a really natural thing if you're you know if you're not disabled and you know you're not um sort of you know involved in that I was going to say sector. That's not right either. <laughs> what am I looking for? Not involved in that community. Then, you know, it's not necessarily something that, you know, you know, whenever you talk to people about this and, you know, they kind of sit and go, oh, yeah, of, co- of course not. It's, and it's not that, you know, they necessarily thought that, you know, it was the way that, you know, nobody who used a wheelchair was ever able to you know move their legs or stand up or whatever it's just not something that they thought about yeah and we don't really get taught it at school or like anything like that so it's like how we very uh, very hush i think like it would actually benefit so much having like some disability history on the syllabus because when you're learning about the war and like the aftermath of the wars this is such a huge part of it and if we just you, you kind of get the like oh yeah people were injured but that's about it but whereas yeah. it's really interesting seeing people like look into specific cases like I know on um who do you think you are recently I think it was David Williams was on there and it turned out his like great grandfather ended up in like a psychiatric hospital for the rest of his life after coming back from the war but yet we never hear about that kind of thing when you're learning about the war. But yet I found that really interesting to find out about like that story. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, these big institutions became really common um, after the war. And, you know, they would take, you know, people with mental illness, you know, neurological illnesses, cognitive impairment, learning disabilities and all of that. You know, plenty of those people were well, stuck there for years. You know, some of those places were still open into the 1990s. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I live in Surrey and there's an old, like, um, hospital called the Holloway Sanatorium, which was open until, like, at least the 70s or 80s. And um, I used to work in the museum in Egham and, like, the records from it are like, oh my god, like there's so many people going into this place. Like it's just crazy, like how many people, even if you just spent a few months there, there was a large amount of patients going into these places. Yeah, absolutely. And um if if anyone's interested in kind of uh sort of these kind of institutions, um there's a 
website called the Lancashire Learning Disability Institutions, where a group of um, organisations and uh, disabled people have collected like oral histories and things like that of, of people who lived in some of these institutions and you know documents and histories and all sorts of things and they've kind of themed them out into you know so like one of one of the themes is um resistance uh which is my favorite segment of the website obviously because <laughs> i'm contrary and <laughs> a nightmare <laughs> but yeah they they tell some great great stories and they've done you know brilliant work and it's all sort of you know accessible and easy to read and you know free for anyone to go and look at which is you know real people who lived in these places their their real memories of being there and then you know backed up with um you know, documents and things like that as well so you know they they had songs apparently like resistance songs that they would sing to the staff to annoy them about how bad it was there everywhere that you know whenever anyone wants to like kick off about something there's always a song always yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a, uh yeah there's one of the god made the bees bees made the honey the patients do the work while the staff get the money oh i love that the sass on that <laughs> yeah it just goes to show that, you know, wherever you put a bunch of disabled people together we will start getting angry <laughs> and then we'll write a song and we'll take the place over exactly and you know a lot of these places are closed now so it did work yeah. in the end yeah we just set the bees on the place yeah i just i love that like it's just interesting like to see the characters of people coming through as well like you can imagine like so how some people would have reacted to being in those places and not everyone would have been, like, you know, depressed about it. Some people would have literally just been, like, you know, making witty remarks and, like, making up songs with their friends that they've made and stuff. Yeah, yeah, there was a story of one of the hostels where there was a, a song. So this was a bit later, so I didn't include it in my notes because technically it didn't really count. Um, it was a song where there was a, um, like, a hospital-wide uh, show. Something where, you know lots of different people were getting up on stage and performing and uh, this group of people got up on stage and sing the song about how terrible the place was <laughs> in front of you know the nurses and the doctors and the directors and all of that and some of them stormed out <laughs> I mean I, I admire those people because that's what everyone wants to do when they're somewhere like you know when you're at work and you're like I don't want to be here you like you know you just want to sing a song about hating them <laughs> To the, uh, to the music equivalent of sticking both middle fingers up. It's a more respectful way of, you know, getting your feelings across. I love it. I might start incorporating this into my everyday life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear how that goes. <laughs> I think uh, I'd get some very strange looks. <laughs> very People would be like, what are you doing? I love that they all kind of like, I mean, I guess not everyone would have stuck together, but I love that they made like, you know, little groups and stuck together. Like, I, I like the the fact that they managed to at least have some sort of a life, even if they had to be stuck in an institution. Yeah, yeah, it was that kind of isolation that was 
sort of isolation from the outside world that was really the kind of you know appalling thing about those places but you know people did form genuine friendships and you know there's there's no reason to think that you know kind of every disabled person during this period was having a terrible terrible time it's you know often there is this uh, you know impression with disability history that um you know we we've never had it so good as we have it now um you know everything was worse back in history and i kind of try and uh, show that that's that's not really the case and you know it hasn't always been terrible to terrible terrible but um often when people are thinking that they are thinking about time periods like the 1920s so <laughs> this is sort of a a bad example i guess arguably of what i'm trying to prove <laughs> i hope that i've managed to show that some you know wasn't all terrible yeah i think it's come across that like people could do more than we thought they could do and like you said with like the blind march and stuff like that people were starting to kind of be able to stand up for themselves and not just get completely shot down and told to like go away so I guess like that was um a positive and I guess with the war and more people being disabled then I think that also helped because you know quantity of numbers if there's more of you and you make more of a fuss then you're gonna get somewhere <laughs> like even if it takes a while if there's 20 million disabled people for example then they're gonna listen at some point <laughs> yeah absolutely and you know while there may not have necessarily been you know as many changes as you would like during this period in particular it really does kind of you know sow the seeds and show the background for um for what starts happening particularly during and after the second world war it sort of you know builds on a lot of these similar um themes and things that people are doing yeah and i think the 20s in general like it was a pretty it was an era where people were making changes to life and things had changed drastically due to the first world war and i think once you get back into the 30s and then problems start again it kind of the 30s and 40s kind of backtrack on what the progression of the 20s and then you get to the 50s again and then people are kind of taking parts of the 20s that they like and using it in the 50s and I think it's just quite an isolated period because it's in between two major wars and I think people kind of forget that because obviously we could say oh the 20s was awful but then there was some good bits that people did take out of it. Yeah yeah absolutely I mean you know it's it's always so hard to you know pinpoint when things start changing you know it's happens so gradually a lot of the time and so you know while you don't necessarily see um you know in terms of like legislation or laws or you know attitudes things like that you know like there there are some laws that come in obviously like the blind persons act and things like that but you know you, you definitely see some of the attitudes that that push forwards and you know I, I think in terms of you know disability I think they do carry on pushing forwards through the 30s and 40s and 50s so I, I, I don't think it necessarily backtracks 
as much as um, you know some other uh, parts of the time as as you're saying but um, like I say I'm very much an all-rounder so <laughs> I'm not a specific historian of the um, you know, 40s and 50s. I guess it's like in, interesting to kind of um, look think about the 40s and 50s but I guess um, it was quite far off the 20s I guess in terms of maybe like medicine and stuff because I know in the 50s a lot of medications and like I think the polio vaccine came out in the 50s and stuff like that so I guess by the 40s and 50s once the war was over you know medical advancements were like the key into helping people live with their disability because I think maybe the 20s was more about cure the disability maybe into the 40s and 50s maybe it did change into more like let's help you with this rather than like just punishing you you know certainly um some of those types of things that you know for uh so um insulin was discovered in the 20s which you know would very suddenly make it so that people with diabetes survived that was a that was a big one and uh yeah for you know deaf people as well things like you know there are a couple of churches in london and um, one of them's in clapham which was a specific church for deaf people which is you know very cool and kind of you know one of um one of few places that you see around of you know a place that is just kind of embracing you know their i guess quote unquote imp uh, impairment you know and now a lot of um deaf people don't consider themselves as uh, disabled or part of the you know disabled community in the same way that you know they had two separate pulpits one for the vicar and one for the you know sign language interpreter it was great you know there there were these these pockets around of um places just for just for the disabled people and just for the communities yeah it's really interesting that the, they had like a deaf church um because you just now i guess it would just be normal church but there'd be a sign a sign person i don't know what they're called sign that's the one i was like sign language what would you call them <laughs> um yeah but like now i guess now it's just normal to see like a sign language interpreter um with a deaf person translating to them but I love the fact that they had like a full church just dedicated to like <laughs> them all seeing the the interpreter and stuff like that's really interesting I guess quite like a modern um thing for the era because um I guess like deaf people like probably it was difficult to be well it was difficult to be disabled back then anyway but I guess as well as being deaf it's one of those ones that you can't actually see if someone's deaf. So I guess that would have been a real challenge back then. Um, if, if people couldn't see it, they probably didn't notice it. Yeah, you know, the, the deaf community has always been, you know, big and vibrant and, you know, inclusive in that way. You know, often... Uh, Deaf people have, in the deaf community have had like a really good sort of 
a sense of themselves. As I believe with these uh, churches in particular, they were um, partially fundraised by the community themselves. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I, I think like that's just a really good like a good story about disability. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> There's a nice there one. Some, I <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's like really nice, like um, that it was important enough to like like for that to happen and also important enough that it got recorded and people know that it happened like it must have been a big I feel like we should probably um start wrapping up otherwise I think we'll end up talking about like every disability in detail and really bore people (laughs) with the information um but I mean I'll ask the question that I've asked pretty much everyone else was it the roaring 20s for disabled people or is that just a term that shouldn't be used in relation to this topic oh well like i say it's hard to make a judgment one way or another it's so broad you know arguably it wasn't a great one for disabled people in general unless i guess you mean roaring in terms of singing offensive songs at the I mean, that that could be part of it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> they never specified yeah. when they came up with that name. <laughs> exactly. There we go. That's where it's come from. <laughs> um, yeah, I've just been asking everyone that because, you know, the answer's so different for every part of the 20s. Like, some bits are really good and some bits are just really not that good. I can imagine. <laughs> Um, so, if you want to find out anything more about disability history, then definitely check out Daisy's page. Um, I'll tag her in the post when I put it out. Um, and I'm sure if you have anything that you want to ask her about, you'd be happy to answer, wouldn't you, Daisy? Oh, absolutely. Just give me five minutes to Google it and pretend that I knew it all along. <laughs> I feel like that's what we all do so um but yeah um and also like if you want to message me and I need to ask Daisy the answer then that is fine as well um but yeah I hope you all enjoyed learning about disability history um Daisy also has an article in the historians magazine about um some disability history which it's not the 20s but you know it's disability history so I was just going to mention it anyway um so if you want to check that out um just visit the historians magazine on instagram and you will find her article um you know might as well plug my own other project here um but yeah just uh I found this really interesting and I think it's great to learn about disability history because we don't learn about it in school and I think we should. Um, so thank you everyone for listening and thank you Daisy for joining me today. That's quite right. Thanks for having me.